Welcome to Grass Talk Radio. This show is for people who play bluegrass music and anybody who might want to. Howdy folks and welcome to Grass Talk Radio. As I record this, we're getting pretty close to Christmas in the year 2017. And I I just state that for those of you who may be listening 10 years in the future. Anyway, we're getting close to Christmas, and Christmas is one of those times of year when a lot of instruments show up underneath the Christmas tree. Sometimes children are getting their first instrument. Sometimes adults are getting a little bit nicer instrument. Sometimes adults are buying themselves a present. But it is a time where a lot of new instruments come out of the cases for the first time. So I, I was thinking about that, and also there's a there's a guy in the town where I live who got himself a banjo, and he knows a guy who knows a guy, and it ended up over at my house for a little setup job on it. And I was looking at this this banjo, and it's a basic beginner-level banjo. It's a Fender, and you can tell it's a beginner level because the the tuners stick out to the side like guitar tuners there's nothing wrong with tuners like that but when you see that you immediately know you're kind of on the low end of the spectrum anyway the guy has taken the notion to learn to play the banjo and this thing had everything wrong with it the neck joint was loose the truss rod was completely loose and it had a had a big forward bow in the neck The uh, nut was too high. The head was loose. The strap was rattling uh, on those. They put these, I don't know why they do it. A lot of cheap banjos have these little added little eyelets where you can attach a strap. And and they are just so prone to rattling or pulling off and falling off. Anyway, I'm going through this banjo. and It's a new banjo. And it was about 10 steps and about two hours of work to make this banjo be as good as it could be. I had to uh, cut the nut down. I had to tighten the truss rod and get the neck straightened out with a little bit of relief in it. Tightened all the hardware, tightened the neck joint, um, tightened the head, put the bridge in the correct location so that it would play in tune. And then I sat down and played it a little bit and it was a different animal completely. Just absolutely night and day difference what a setup makes. And and anyway, fooling around with that banjo got me thinking about all the instruments that I've had over the years. And, you know, some of the things that beginners go through when they're searching for an instrument. So I thought I would take this episode and talk about the progression that most musicians who, who stay at it for any length of time Let's say if you stick with it for 10 years, you're going to go through this basic progression where you you begin with a certain kind of instrument and you step up and then you may step up again. And so let me talk a little bit about these, what I, how I would classify most instruments. They're, they will fall into one of these five categories. And remember that these categories, there are no hard edges. Something in category one can be sort of overlapping into category two and then two overlaps three it's it, think of it as a sliding scale not a hard line where this instrument is a number one 
Because uh, a lot of times, just like with people and cars and practically anything that you rate, you can subdivide it into little categories and say, well, in terms of action, it's a one. In terms of tone, it's a three. You know what I'm saying? But these are just the five general categories that if, if you handed me an instrument and said, which one is it? One, two, three, four, or five, I, I can pretty quickly throw it into one of those categories. So here are the five categories. And then I'm going to talk about the pros and cons of each of these quality levels. And I'm also going to give you kind of a rundown of some of the instruments that I have personally owned and played over the years. So here are the five very quickly. <clears throat> the, the first and lowest quality class is what I call barely playable junk. And this is, uh, I've seen guitars. Like uh, one time I was over at my friend, Bob McIsaac's, um, guitar shop and there was a guitar in the trash can. <laughs> Somebody had brought it in and asked what it would take to get it repaired. And after some discussion, the guy just decided to throw it in the trash. Well, I pulled it out of the trash and I took it home, stuck some strings on it, put a bridge on it, fiddled around with it a little bit and gave it to my daughter who was at the time five. And she put stickers all over it. This is what I call barely playable junk. It almost doesn't even come up to the standard of, of being called an instrument. So that's category one, barely playable junk. And sometimes those instruments used to be a little better, but through mistreatment or, you know, accidents, sometimes they've ended up being barely playable junk. And sometimes those can be brought back up the scale a little bit. Sometimes they're just born as barely playable junk. Okay, then the second category is what I call a decent playable instrument. You know, we can't really find too much wrong with this. This is would describe that Fender banjo, pretty much brand new, probably, you know, somebody bought it off Amazon or something. It's a decent playable beginner instrument. Nothing to write home about. You know, Bela Fleck is not likely to use one in his next concert. But you can't really find fault with it in that it plays in tune. The action's pretty good. And, you know, it's something you could learn on. Okay. Doesn't have much in the way of tone. Okay, so that's the decent playable instrument. Then the third category is what I call the step up. And some people might call these intermediate level instruments. And they are the difference between that step up instrument and that decent playable instrument is the construction methods of the step up instrument more accurately copy the high level instruments. So for example, uh, speaking of a banjo, that decent playable Fender banjo had one single very lightweight rod inside the pot that adjusts the neck angle. has a little turnbuckle in the middle. It's just a single little rod, maybe, I don't know, I don't even know if it's a quarter of an inch in diameter, with a turnbuckle in the middle. That's pretty common on very low-end banjos. But a step-up instrument 
will have like a five sixteenths inch diameter rod and usually two rods in there. And suddenly this banjo is a lot more stable. It'll have a thicker rim. It'll probably have a, some kind of a tone ring mounted on a thicker wooden rim where the, the lower priced, the cheap entry level instrument will just have maybe a three eighths inch thick wooden rim, no tone ring and a very minuscule rod inside. So when you get to that step up instrument, these are kind of factory production, um, copies of much better instruments. So when you move up into a step up instrument, it looks and feels a lot like a high end instrument, but it's not. The materials aren't as good. Certainly the quality of workmanship, the, the fitting of the parts and the care that was put into the instrument isn't as good, but it's a huge step up. So that's the step up instrument. And then you move on up to the category that I call the working musicians acts. And this is a lot better than a step up instrument. But it's not a it's not like a coveted collectible instrument or anything like that. It's the standard. This is the stuff that the guys and gals are out there making a living playing these these type of instruments. And then the the uppermost category, and it goes on from category five on up into the clouds, and it's what I classify as dream instruments. Once you get to that great working man's instrument, you don't really need to go any farther, further. Because you've achieved everything that you can in terms of a mechanical instrument serving your needs and providing great tone. Beyond that, you get into, you know, what's the name on the headstock? How old is it? You know, how many were made? You know, you, you get into things like the Lloyd Lore mandolin. And, it, it, and again, all these categories, there's a range. You can have a great working man's axe and move up a little bit into some really desirable, collectible type instruments that are just as good in terms of sound. But, you know, the you can just keep on throwing dollars at them and go as far as you want to. But I just limit it to category five dream instruments. So let me go over those five one more time. And by the way, I probably in my house right now, there are probably examples of all of these. <laughs> well, maybe not dream number five. I, I don't really have any number fives I have had in the past. Um, okay. So here are the, here are the five categories again. Number one, barely playable junk. Number two, a decent playable instrument. Number three, a step up instrument. And number four, the working musician's axe. And number five, dream instruments. Okay, so let's talk, uh, or let me describe to you some of the instruments that I have owned. When I started out, when I first got the mandolin bug, 
I bought a mandolin out of the J.C. Penny catalog, and this is probably about 1975. I seem to remember the price being about 50 bucks. An A-style mandolin. It was probably a silver tone, or well, silver tone was a Sears brand, but it probably all came out of a the K factory. I, I would assume it's probably a K, but it didn't have any name on the headstock at all. It was just an A-style mandolin, plywood, pressed top, very thick body on them, and you could tune it up and play it, you know, and I did. So that was my first one. Then I, I you know, I immediately got the uh, Scroll Envy and wanted to have an F-style, and I found it was an import, probably Korean, um, F-style press top plywood mandolin. Basically it was the same thing I already had, but it had the little curly cue and the points and it wasn't much better sounding. It had no name on the headstock whatsoever. So I call it the no name F. I ended up selling that to a fellow student of mine when I was going to ABAC and it was a step up for him, but not much of a step up. So I went from the JC Penny a style to the no name F style. Then I came to my first step up. And by the way, both of those two, the JC Penny and the no name were what I would call decent playable instruments. They were category two. They were not barely playable junk. Both of them tuned just fine, uh, fretted out in tune. You could adjust the action. You know, there wasn't anything significantly wrong with them. So I would put them in category two. Then I made the step up and I bought an Alvarez F style mandolin and it was the first solid wood mandolin that I had. It, it was not plywood back and sides and top. It was solid wood. It was not fancy. It didn't even have the little uh, ridge line in the scroll. It was just flat, but it was a solid spruce top. And I remember just what an awakening it was to play that thinking about the tone this thing sounded five times better than the other two mandolins i had owned up to that point it doesn't mean it sounded great but it sounded a lot better i had made that step up into that third class that step up slash intermediate instrument where the construction and the materials is more like the real thing but they've still had to cut a lot of corners to keep the price low. So that was an Alvarez F style. Again, in my quest for a better mandolin, the next step up I made in mandolins was I bought Roger Simonoff's book. Uh, it's called how to construct a, an F five mandolin. Mine, my copy was the old one in the ring binder. And I decided I, I would build one and I did. So when I completed that, that was probably in about 1982, I, it, it sounded a lot better than the Alvarez. I mean, if you put it next to a great mandolin, it was not a great mandolin, but it was, again, a step up. And I would put it right there in that step up category. It was a, kind of a step sideways, you might say. But I built that thing. I still have it. 
Uh, one of the things I did on that mantle is I used Douglas fir for the top because in Simonoff's book, it said, hey, if you don't have any spruce, you know, you can use Douglas fir. And apparently I didn't read the rest of the sentence, which said, and if you do use Douglas fir, be sure to make the top a little thinner. I didn't do that. I just made it to the specs and the drawings and it. It was always a little constricted sounding and didn't have the volume that I had hoped for. It's because that Douglas fir is a lot stiffer wood than uh, varieties of spruce. Anyway, but that actually was kind of crossing over between a step up and a working man's instrument. Because when I joined Cedar Hill, that was the instrument I was playing, the homemade F5 out of the Seminoff book with the Doug fir top. And it was all mahogany. The back and sides and neck were all mahogany. So that kind of helped mellow it out a little bit. But I was playing gigs with that. I mean, I was hitting it hard. And in fact, on that um, first Cedar Hill album in 1984, that's the mandolin that, that I recorded the album on. So there I am kind of still in phase three in the step up slash intermediate. Then I got the flat iron. F5 artist, a 1985 made in Bozeman, uh, signed by Steve Carlson. That is a category four. That is a working man's instrument. You can't find anything wrong with it. I can't. After all these years, I've, I've had that thing since 1985 and I have still not heard a mandolin that I like better. And I've played Gilchrist. I've played, uh, I, I not owned, but played, um, five or six lures and just, I mean, all kind of stuff I've had the chance to play and compare to mine and I have not found one any better. And that's why I still play that. I have an asterisk next to it on my list. I've had other stuff. I've had a 1914 Gibson a style. It's cool mandolin. I, I would never take it out and play it at a gig. I have an, an a five, another one that I built using the Seminoff plans and I, built it out of spruce and you know it just didn't top the flat iron i had two f5s built by a guy named bo gustafsson in sweden great sound of mandolins really wonderful instruments but something about them they just didn't top that flat iron so they went away and i had a couple of electric mandolins which i won't go into here but that progression what I'm saying is if you're sitting there and you've got an instrument or don't have any instrument, you're probably going to have a one, two, three, or four. You might have a five. If you got plenty of money or just won the lottery, you might have a five, but four is your goal. Ultimate goal. I think you can, you can take those five categories, barely playable junk. Number two, decent playable instrument. Number three, that, First big step up into the world of real instruments. And then four, that really good, really solid working man's instrument. That's number four. I think most people would do well to concentrate only on step two, three, and four. And just forget category one. I mean, yes, any instrument is better than no instrument. You know, if you're on a desert island, you know, carve you a banjo out of a coconut, you know, whatever. 
I began my banjo playing on a barely playable piece of junk. I still have it. I made it. And it was barely playable. But, man, the fun I had with that thing. And there, there is something about playing barely playable junk that makes you appreciate that decent playable instrument. And that decent playable instrument that you spend a year playing Without that, you don't understand what that first real step up, that Category 3 instrument is. If you begin there, you have no context. Okay? And unfortunately, with adult students, I've seen a lot of adult students who have jumped straight up to Category 4, perhaps even Category 5. That's where they began. I think... Many times they don't really have a clue what they're doing. And if you go directly to a Category 4, maybe because you got plenty of money, you know, you may do the right thing and you may not. Because there's a lot of different instruments out there. And there is one that is just perfectly suited for you. And I'm going to kind of get off here a little bit. And you know how much I like analogies. I... I think this whole progression of instruments and finding your the perfect mate for you is a lot like finding a real mate in life. You could find a corollary, and I'm going to speak only from a male perspective because that's the only thing I know anything about, but I'm, I'm quite certain that any female could back me up on this, that there are categories of men and I'm just going to talk about categories of women, just briefly. I don't, I don't want to get in too much trouble here. But think of those five categories. Barely playable junk, a decent playable instrument, the step-up instrument, and the great, you found it, the, the great working man's, or working musician's acts, and then the dream instruments. You know, if you think about, you know, um, when you're in kindergarten and you had a crush on that little girl, well, I'm, that that might be kind of that category two decent playable instrument, you know. But you, it would probably be unwise to marry that girl immediately, you know what I mean? You need a little more experience. You need to, how can you judge who is your perfect mate in kindergarten, you know what I mean? Then there's that step up. Maybe it's that girl you dated in high school or in college or whatever. And you you learn a lot more about, you know, what goes into a relationship and what qualities you're looking for in a mate. And they're doing the same thing and they may dump you. And perhaps wisely so. What I'm saying is there's somebody out there for everybody. And it's different for everybody. And that's true in musical instrument mating, where you're mating with an instrument. And when you find that instrument, I've, I've sometimes said it finds you. You know it. You know it. It's, it's like, you know, it's like true love. There's a moment where you know all your previous choices where you thought you had the thing and all all of a sudden, you forget all that, and you have found the thing. So that's that Category 4, that working musician's instrument. Then there are those dream instruments. And I'm just suggesting that in mates and in 
instrument selection, you probably shouldn't spend too much time worrying about those. I mean, you can go around chasing your dream, but probably you'll be happier in the long run with a good Category 4. And in many ways, a Category 4 is better than a Category 5 in both mates and instruments. I'm not saying I wouldn't like to own a Lloyd Lore mandolin, but the couple that I've played, and played them back-to-back with my flat iron, I would still rather play the flat iron. It sounds better to me. To me. Everybody's different. So anyway, just I'm not going to tell you how to choose a mate, and I'm not going to tell you how to choose an instrument. But I would suggest that you allow the progression to naturally take place. Go through this progression. Don't worry with what you're playing today, but be on the lookout for the thing that you really like even better. You're not going to make that decision in the first three months of your playing or the first six months or the first three years. The odds of you finding that great instrument in those first couple of years is very small. You might It could be that your daddy played the guitar and he's got this really sweet old 50s D18 and it's great and you start playing it and you don't appreciate it. You've been hearing it around the house for years. You don't understand how great this guitar is. You're going to have to go out and make your own mistakes first. You're going to have to, you're going to have to, you know, want that new uh, Martin this or a Taylor or a, a Collings and And when it's all said and done, you may come back to daddy's old D18. You know what I'm saying? It's about experience. you got to build experience so that you can judge what it is really suits you. All right, let me talk about some of the banjos that I've had. My first banjo I built, as I talked about in a previous podcast, it, it it was made out of the board's in my closet shelf and a fence post, a cedar fence post using the Foxfire plans. And this was, I was just so determined to have a banjo that I made this banjo. That was the first one. It didn't take long for me to realize that this was not the ultimate banjo. And that I needed something else. If I was going to be the next Earl Scruggs, I, I couldn't play that fretless fence post forever. So I, you know, get in the Sears catalog and I bought myself a, uh, it was surely a K, a silver tone, 16 bracket, no tone ring, very much like this Fender that I'm, you know, setting up for this guy right now. It wasn't much different than that. Man, what a difference. What a difference. I could actually play chords on it. I mean, playing a fretless fence post, it's kind of hard to form that F chord and get any decent tone out of it. All of a sudden, I could actually do the things that were in the book. You know, I'm plunk, plunk, and what a difference. But that was nowhere near the ultimate banjo. So about a year later, I bought, ran across another one, and it was an Aria. And this was a really interesting instrument because... It was almost in that step-up category. It was in that step-up category. The K was that number two, decent playable instrument. And the Aria was one of those step-up intermediate. It had the double coordinator rods in it. Uh, It had, you know, like a three-quarter inch. It might not have been. It's probably like a five-eighths inch wood rim. Had a tone ring on it. Had a flange. 
instead of just little plates stuck on there. Had a flange. What was interesting about that banjo was the tone ring was machined out of aluminum, and so was the flange. This was the lightest banjo. But it, the, the tone ring in that banjo were, were the exact same specs as a master tone bell bronze tone ring, but this one was machined out of aluminum. It was a surprisingly good sounding banjo and it weighed almost nothing. I wish I still had it. It was just kind of interesting. That was a step up. Suddenly I could play up the neck stuff and it sounded better. Everything about that banjo sounded better than the K and everything about the K sounded better than the fence post banjo. But I'm still striving towards a better banjo. And I think it was 1978 that I, I had the urge for a Gibson, of course, and couldn't get my hands on a Gibson because they wouldn't sell it to me on time payment plans. Like we bought the French horn. So I got a Stuart McDonald kit banjo and put it together and it was five, 10 times better sounding than that Aria. Wow. What a difference. And I'm still playing that same banjo from 1978. I've had other stuff. I've had a, a really nice copy of a Gibson master tone. I've had a Gibson Earl Scruggs standard. I've had a Deering deluxe. A lot of banjos have come through my hands and I wanted them to be the one, but none of them were the one. Nothing has so far topped to me, to my ears and the way I play that old Stuart McDonald three R. So what I'm saying is it's not always about money. I think that kit cost 300 bucks back then. Anyway, the point is the goal isn't to necessarily have that dream instrument. I mean, yeah, that's nice, but the goal is to have that great sounding instrument that really suits you. And that may not be horribly expensive, but, or it could be, you know, depending upon you. Um, anyway, that's my banjo story in terms of claw hammer banjos. I've always tinkered around with claw hammer too. And that first fence post banjo was my first claw hammer banjo too. And I, I built four or five of those over the years. In fact, I made one about a year ago. I just, I keep making them. I keep saying, well, I can make one that looks a little better than that other one. Ultimately, I ended up with an Orpheum, an Orpheum number one with a 12-inch rim. And that, once I got my hands on that, I, I just stopped looking. That, that was as far as I wanted to go. I've had a bunch of banjos, you know, come through my hands and be passed along to students and things like that. I've done this same sort of thing with uh, guitar as well. The, the first guitar was an old K guitar laying around the house that my mother had. I don't know anything about the model of it or anything. It was just a basic old K guitar. I ended up getting a, like while I was in high school, I got a Fender acoustic and it had a bolt-on neck. The neck looked like an electric guitar. That was probably, I don't know, it might have been a really collectible thing. I don't know. Didn't like it at all because what I wanted was a Martin. I wanted to be playing the thing I saw in those pictures. You know, when I looked through Peter Wernick's book and I saw these bluegrass bands and those black and white photos, I knew you don't stop until you got yourself a Martin. 
but I had that Fender and I had a Yamaha. And then the first real guitar that I got my hands on was a, was a, uh, a Loudon. And this thing was made in Ireland and it was a gorgeous guitar. Good sounding, big body. I think it had a cedar top. Man, what a difference. But it wasn't that bluegrass sound. And ultimately, I ended up getting a mid-80s. I think it's an 86 Martin HD 28. And from then on, I stopped looking. That was the sound I was after, and it was a decent playable instrument. I don't have to worry about dinging it up because it's already dinged up. I don't have to worry about anybody stealing it if I'm careful. I mean, what I'm saying is it's not a valuable old, you know, like a pre-war Martin or something like that. I, I don't have to fret over it. It's, it's just a good sound and axe. So my guitar quest sort of ended there. In basses, it, it's not the same uh, because there aren't as many categories. Basically, in bluegrass bass, it all starts and ends with K basses. And I started out uh, probably in 78. I bought a K, a 1949 KM1. It's plywood bass. You know, had the crap beat out of it, and I have beat it up even worse over the years. Gave it a good setup, put some good strings on it. That's a great sound and bass. Well, that one I ended up selling when our, our bass player, if you uh, listen to the episode on uh, uh, Tales of Instrument, Instrument Destruction, I talk about Fred's bass being run over by a truck. That's how I ended up getting rid of that first 49K. And I was just determined that I would find another one. And eventually I did find another 41K and it was falling apart. A guy had stored it in his basement and the, the, the floor in the basement was gravel and it had sat on one side and basically delaminated itself. It had just come apart. And I bought the thing and over the course of about six months and a lot of homemade clamps and patience and i put that bass back together and that's the bass that i play today and it's again a 49k i've had some other ones i've had you know angle hearts i've had some homemade stuff chinese carved top you know anytime somebody came around with a playable bass a lot of times i would grab it and fix it up and pass it along to a student you know I'm not going to talk about electric guitars because I've had a couple. I'm not an electric guitar player, and there's no interesting stories in there at all. Same goes for fiddle. I've had five or six fiddles. i probably got three in the closet right now. I'm no fiddle player, and I never will be, despite the fact that I would love to be a, a fiddle player. I, I think the problem with me and the fiddle is I can't stand to hear myself play it. If I could stand it, maybe I would practice, but it's just too horrible. So I'm no fiddle player. And I've heard enough good fiddle players that I immediately know how bad I am. And I have great admiration for all you fiddle players out there. That's a tough instrument. Had all kind of other stuff over the years. Um, but I, I hope what you get out of this episode is that the instrument that you have may not and probably is not that ultimate instrument. And that's okay. You got to have something to learn on. Make sure that you've got at minimum a decent playable instrument. That means a truss rod. If it's, you know, a banjo or mandolin or guitar, I, I got a banjo one time at a trade. It's called the conqueror and it looked just like my old K basically the same thing. Had a truss rod cover 
on the peg head, and I assumed it had a truss rod. And embossed in the truss rod cover, it, st- it said steel reinforced neck. And that implied to me a truss rod. Of course, it had a bad forward bow in the neck. It was horrible. I was going to straighten it out, you know, and pass it along to a beginning banjo student. Well, I take the truss rod cover off and there's nothing under there. There's no truss rod. Maybe they had an embedded steel rod in the neck. I don't know, but it was bent. And there was no truss rod. That truss rod cover was a flat out lie or a deception. So be a little careful. I, so I put that, that conqueror in the barely playable junk category. Um, thankfully, I don't have that banjo anymore. I gave it away. I kind of feel guilty giving it to the person. It was truly junk. But when you're looking for that decent playable instrument, look for a truss rod. Take the truss rod cover off and look. Make sure there's actually one in there. You know, uh, decent tuners are probably helpful. You know, uh, wrestling with a friction peg on the fist string will frustrate you as a beginner, as will all friction tuning pegs. You know, you can always step up to some geared tuners and save the old friction tuners in a bag for historical purposes. Keep them. But, you know, having some decent tuning machines will help you a lot as a beginner. And get a good setup. And I don't necessarily mean, I'm not going to talk about setups here in this episode, but um, just because the guy standing on the other side of the counter from you doesn't know, doesn't mean he knows what he's doing with a banjo or a mandolin. So consult some of the better musicians and say, who would you take it to? Get a good setup. 90% of all certainly new instruments, if you buy something off Amazon, they're going to come and the net's going to be too high. Absolutely guaranteed nuts going to be too high so you need somebody that has done some nut work get that nut straightened out i am on on the show notes page for this episode just go to grasstalkradio.com slide down to this episode hit show notes i'm going to put some links in there i have a couple of pages of information on my website specifically for mandolin or banjo I have two different pages if you're pulling that instrument out from under the tree this talks about those very, very basic initial setup things that you need to consider. And it's, you know, how to put your bridge in the right place, that kind of thing. And uh, there's a couple of videos on there, just some free information for you. And even if you've been playing for a few months or a year, you might want to go take a look at that stuff because there could be something in there that you haven't seen or heard about before. Last thing back going over these five categories that barely playable junk avoid that it's going to be nothing but frustration for you at least be in the decent playable instrument category then be on the lookout for that step up don't worry about that huge step up don't try to leap to the top move up try to get a better quality instrument and keep working on your playing And while you're doing that, be seeking out that great working musician's instrument. Because most of the time, once you find that, you're pretty much done looking. Dream instruments, hey, we all have our dreams. And, you know, you should too. And I hope you get your dream instrument. But you don't have to go all the way up into the clouds, into that Lloyd Lore category or that pre-war Martin. 
in order to have a great instrument. So category four is probably your goal. Get from two to three to four and maybe allow yourself three to four years, maybe a little longer for that process to happen. Because if you go too soon, if you, you say, well, I don't, you know, I just want to find that great working man's instrument that acts. I want to find that right now. I don't recommend that you do that because frankly, if you're a beginner, you don't know enough yet. You don't have enough experience to even decide what it is you do want. Hopefully that makes sense. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed the episode and hope everybody has a nice Christmas coming up. Regardless of when you're listening to this, Christmas is always coming. Uh, which brings up a point. Uh, why are there no uh, bluegrass Christmas songs? The only one I've ever heard. Uh, there are probably a few new ones out now. They're probably selling Christmas bluegrass CDs at Cracker Barrel. But the only one I ever knew about was Christmas Time's Coming. Bill Monroe. I don't know if he wrote it, but I don't think he did. Anyway, Christmas is always coming. And the search for that great instrument never ends. Y'all have a great day, and I'll talk to you in the next podcast.